Mark chapter 10. That's where we'll be this morning. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father God, thank you. What a privilege it is to hear the saints sing, Father, of your great love for them. Lord, we're all encouraged when we sing and we hear that there's other people in the room that believe like we believe that, that you actually love us, Father. And so we sing it from hearts of gratitude and hearts of thankfulness. Uh, and we encourage the saints around us when we sing. So thank you for that, Father. Thank you for that good gift that you've given us. And may we uh, drink deeply of that well. Father, we pray, Lord, as we open the scriptures this morning, that you would give us understanding, Lord, not as the world understands, because to them the cross is foolishness, but to us it's life-giving. And so, Father, may we be filled with life this morning. May we see clearly, may we hear your voice and your heart of compassion this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm wondering, when was the last time you sung, Jesus loves me, this I know? Besides this morning. Uh, hopefully, you sang it this morning. That's why we sing and worship together. But I wonder, when was the last time you sung this song and thought deeply about its truth? You see, for my stage of life, it's every day. Every day, uh, so much so that if I was to lay Myra down in bed without singing at least one verse of Jesus loves me, this I know, uh, she would cry until we'd pull her up out of the crib, sit down in the rocking chair, sing her one verse, immediately put her back in the bed and change the world. She can now sleep soundly, knowing that Jesus, our Lord, loves her. And listen, this is true. This is gloriously true that Jesus does indeed love the little children of the world. But it's also true that he loves you, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa. He loves the adults. He loves the children. He loves the old people. As I've already said, no one in this room is old, of course. Uh, but he loves the older people, the people that are getting older, But it seems to me from the reading of Mark 10 here, it seems that there's a particular interest and love for children uh, over and above maybe than his love for adults. Sadly, though, many people do not share this Jesus' love. They don't share it. You see, in Jesus' day, as, as what's attested to in the scriptures here for us this morning, is that, that oftentimes children are viewed as liabilities until they can contribute to society. We've seen this in Mark chapter 9 as we went through that passage. You see, uh, and some people today treat children as little more than a commodity to be used at this car. Listen to the people who talk about not having kids. Listen to the language they use, like tied down or burdens or I'll have to give up what I like if I have children. Simply commodities. Things to be used and discarded. And you see, throughout history, this web of un not understanding children, this intrinsic value of children, right, this, is, this has been ignored. It's been, it's been ignored. Biblically, biblical examples, right? So think about the scriptures here just for a minute. We've seen Herod killing babies during Jesus' day, simply wiping out a whole generation We've seen the same in Pharaoh in the Exodus, in Exodus chapter 1 and 2. You see, in general, children were not held in high esteem by the Romans of Jesus' day, nor of the Pharaohs in Moses' day. And by Jesus' time, the Romans had, uh, oftentimes they had trash heaps. You see, they don't, they don't have trash collection services like you and I have, uh, where they take that and bury it, probably in West Virginia, or wherever, who knows, ship it, I don't know. 
But they, the, what they would do is they would have these just heaping, heaping piles of trash next to homes, like where homes were located. Like imagine like Mill Valley subdivision, and right behind Mill Valley subdivision would just be a giant pile of trash where people would just simply throw their, their litter. And what people would do is they would bring their children to these trash heaps and simply leave them there. Unwanted, unloved, unneeded burdens to society. And if other people wanted these children, they should, they, all they had to do was simply show up and pick them up. You see, sometimes these kids were raised to be prostitutes, gladiators, or even slaves. And so that is one strand of evil when it comes to children. But there's also another strand in our day and age. Right? Especially in American cultures, and God help us, even in Christian homes, that children can be turned into idols used to pamper and coddle. You see their place at, this, at the center of a universe. And listen, all kids love to be the center of the universe. This is dangerous. This is the other side of the ditch, if you will. This type of idolization of children is actually what leads some parents to being unwilling to discipline their kids because they, how could they punish their own idol? It's clear that we have no idea what it means in the, in the view of God, like what children are, or what they're for, or how to raise them. The culture at large, if you listen to them, they have no idea. But if we were to look at the scriptures as God sees them, then we would understand that these are, these are gifts to parents. Not only are they blessings, but they're also used as an illustration for how we enter the kingdom of God. Remember a couple weeks ago when I said, or maybe even last week, that, that Jesus didn't just simply point, like he wasn't like at a loss for words trying to understand how to convey that he is the great shepherd. And so he's just like looking around for some dude who's kind of like watching over sheep. And then finally he's like, oh yeah, yeah you, you know a shepherd, right? Like, like I'm like that, I'm the great shepherd. Right? It wasn't, it wasn't random chance. No, like God instituted the idea of shepherdhood so that we would understand and we would have some way of grasping what it means for Jesus to be the great shepherd. Same thing with marriage, like the picture of marriage would be the picture of God and his relationship with the church. In the same way, the picture of children. Why, have you ever thought about, like, why did God create children? You ever think, you ever think, these are things pastors think about. I don't know. Why did, why did God create children? Now, three reasons. Primarily, uh, to be a blessing and a good gift. Uh, secondly, to, to teach us what it means when Jesus says that God is his father. You, can't have you, you don't have an idea of fatherhood without an idea of childhood. And so he created this family unit so that we would understand what fatherhood means from God's point uh, of view. And then, and then and so you see God loves his children. So therefore, we know how to love our children. And third, it teaches us, as this text shows us, what it means to actually enter into the kingdom of God. You see, Mark chapter 10 is divided into five sections. We've covered the first uh, on marriage, 1 through 12. Today, 13 through 16, is on children. And then he's going to jump into possessions, uh, sacrificial service, and then finally, response to the faith of a blind man. These will be the next three weeks, the outline for the next three weeks, if you're curious and want to read ahead and wonder what I'm going to be thinking about and praying about and preaching about. But this morning, I want us to consider how Jesus treated children in order that we may then know how to treat children, how to have a proper understanding. We're going to do that by looking at three things this morning. Number one, bringing children to Jesus. Number two, becoming children ourselves. And then three, we're going to deal with the, death, uh, the hard topic of what happens when a child dies. So let's, let's, let's look at the text here. Mark 10, 
verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. You see, Jesus had a special affection for children. That's not surprising if we think of all of our concepts of Jesus and love and of who Christ is, who God is. Like, that doesn't really surprise us. What should surprise us is the disciples' reaction, the fact that disciples didn't love Jesus. You see, Jesus loves children for who they are, a work of his sovereign Father. He also loves them for what they teach of how someone enters into the kingdom of God. You see, one would have a difficult time in finding in any of ancient literature anything concerning uh, for concern for children comparable to that which is shown by Jesus here, right? So we read these words, right, of 2,000 years ago, and if you look at the textbooks of the Jewish schools at that day or the Roman schools at that day or the Chinese schools at that day, nothing would have been about, like, here's how awesome children are and here's how much you should love them. And here's Jesus coming on the scene, like, yeah, 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 we love the children. Love them. It shouldn't surprise us. Many of the things Christ said had been considered absolutely radical in his day. It's what most of chapter 8 and 9 was about. Which should cause us to stop and wonder is what we as Christians, is what we are saying or how we are living considered radical enough by the world around us? Does the world look at your life with a dumbfounded look on their face? Not sure what to make of you. Or do they see your life as basically the same as theirs? You just got a little Jesus sprinkled in. Are we being salty enough as Christians? Are we living like Jesus enough to be considered as radical as Jesus was? That's what it means to be a Christian, by the way. So the text says here they were bringing children to Jesus. The they doesn't say who it is, just the proverbial they. Moms, dads, uh, grandma, grandpa, extended family, friends. They wanted the little ones to meet this man named Jesus and to be touched by them. There's two things here. They were bringing him that he might touch them. And so as Jesus' bouncers, they sought to restrict this access of those who would love children to Jesus. Do you notice this? It doesn't say the disciples rebuked the children. The disciples rebuked them. The them who were bringing the children. The extended families, the parents, the friends of the children. They assumed that their Jesus was either too busy or too important to stoop down to the level of a child. And thus they started getting on these people. These people who love their children enough to actually bring them to Christ. What about you? Are you like those who want to love children to Jesus? Or are you like the disciples who have no time for babysitting? You see, we have a nursery here at the church... We have preschoolers, we have school children, and by God's grace, we're going to fill all the classrooms with all the children. We have VBS, we have uh, children who need families to love them well. Our church has no shortage of need for those who would love children enough to show them Jesus. I wonder, have you always viewed this ministry of, of working with children as something less than what you should be focused on? What about the dangers outside of the church, right? We think about children inside the church with VBS and nursery and all the things that need volunteers. But what about the dangers outside of the church walls? There's a world out there that has no idea what it means to love children well, fam. As a matter of fact, this world is hell-bent on destroying children in one way or another. Would you stand up and be heard? 
When your coworkers are talking about abortion, sex, trafficking, pornography, child poverty, would you love children towards Christ? Or would you be like the disciples, be like, we ain't got time for that? Jesus loved them. So look at verse 14. You see, the first thing we're doing when we're understanding children is that our goal is always to lead children to Christ. Always. Look at verse 14. But when Jesus saw that he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. So when Jesus saw his disciples fussing and trying to push the parents out for bringing their children to Jesus, Jesus wigs out on them. Goes berserk. There's no other time in all the scripture where it says Jesus became indignant. This righteous anger was aroused. He publicly rebuked his disciples in front of everybody. James Edwards says that the object of a person's indignation reveals a great deal about the person. You see, Jesus' displeasure here reveals his compassion and defense of the helpless, vulnerable, and powerless. You see, Jesus is affirming that children are worth his time and that they should be worth, worth of our time, worthy of our time. You see, the primary way children are led to Christ is, does anybody know? Through mom and dad. Mom and dad. You see, one of the major disconnects in the modern church is that we view children's programs or youth groups as the primary means by which children should be led to Christ. So what you have is, let's say, a mom and dad who works 40 hours a week, 40 hours plus a week, completely wrung out, trying to make ends meet, gets to the end of the week, wakes up Saturday, and they need to meet the need of their children with sports, music, entertainment, whatever it be that fills their days. And then Sunday comes and they say, uh, let's get these children to church so they can hear about God. What happens long-term to families like this? I think what happens is that as the child grows up, they will eventually stop playing sports, stop being entertained by the same entertainment as they were as children. They'll stop playing the trombone. And then what happens they eventually stopped going to church. Why? Because for them, it was just another scheduled event, just a thing to be a part of. Now, can God still save children whose parents just simply bring them to church, drop them off at the nursery program, at the children's church program? Listen, absolutely. Absolutely. I used to be in youth ministry. I myself was saved in youth ministry, with not with my mom and dad who loved the Lord. But what is more likely to happen is that as the child grows, they become more and more disconnected from God and from the people of God. What will, happen, what will help our children is not necessarily a new or different, different program. Now, I know where we're at in our church here, right? The need for a youth pastor, the need for a youth program. Listen, mom, dad, the primary means by which God intends to save your sons and your daughters is from you. Now, we believe here at the church that, that we want to partner with you in that. Mom and dad of young, young kids, we're here to help. Mom and dad of a youth group, we're here to help. But listen, that's not the primary means by which God wants us to do it. And so what we need to do as Christians, as parents, as people who just simply want to love children well, is we first need to be fixated on Christ. And there's several ways we can consistently and actively lead children to Jesus. Let's just get through a couple of these. Number one, we can evangelize them with a gospel-saturated home. This looks like mom and dad deeply loving Jesus throughout the week. You see, you can't go all week never mentioning Christ, never mentioning the good news of the gospel, never mentioning God in your home, and expect the Sunday service to simply be enough. 
The Sunday service should be a starting point of a week-long praise and worship of adoration towards Jesus Christ. So you ask, well, that sounds hard. Where, <laughs> what sustains this kind of living? Listen, that kind of living, of simply your whole home, everywhere in life, uh, in your home, being saturated with the gospel is an overflow of the grace and the work of Christ in your own heart. You see, you cannot give the children what you do not possess. Lots of people who have no love for Christ will oftentimes start attending church after they have children. Why? They're looking for something. They don't know what it is. Some kind of training in morality, how to be a good person, and they miss that their child will most likely simply follow in their footsteps. No love for Christ, no real change of heart, but maybe they try to be a good person. We can evangelize them in our homes. Number two, we can disciple them with a Bible-saturated home. This looks different for each family. But let me try to give you some key elements of how we try to implement this kind of of Bible-saturatedness in our home and how you should do it as well. Like We as parents actually need to read the Bible. Is anybody surprised by that? It isn't enough that we simply put pictures of Bible quotes on our walls in our homes. If, listen, if you are the kind of parent who says, uh, we're just going to put, um, golly, what's the, the verse out of Joshua, right? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You put that on your wall and you never actually read the scriptures. What's going to happen to your children? They're going to grow up and they'll be the first ones to notice the hypocrisy in your life. Faster than anyone else. We should read the Bible. Number two, we as parents need to reference the Bible often and always. This seems daunting at first, but it's easier than it seems. The more you begin to reference the scriptures in your home, the easier it becomes. For example, let's say you sit down to lunch this afternoon, and there you are, enjoying the juiciness of that burger. Man, this is good. Or the salty crunch of chips at a Mexican restaurant. Or the sourness of a glass of lemonade. And you look to your child and you simply say to them, isn't it awesome that God created all of these flavors? It's as simple as that. In that moment, you are teaching, reminding your child that God created all things. Listen, we should reference the scriptures, constantly making mention of them to our children. We as parents need to apply the Bible. This is so important. If you want your child to see the Bible as more than a book of simple stories, but to see it as it actually and really is, which is a comprehensive understanding of all of life, then you need to apply the Bible. As a matter of fact, did you know most of the Bible is actually narrative? It's simply stories. It may be surprising for some of you who simply live in the New Testament and never venture into the, the, the depth of the Old Testament. You see, it's more than just commandments or great theological truths tightly wound and argued for like in the book of Romans. But they're stories. So, for example, God gives the commandment of not lying, right? Simple. And then the Bible is filled with stories of what happens when people actually lie. Like, take Ananias and Sapphira, who they lied about how much money they made on the sale of their home. Or take Zacchaeus, who lied about his business practice. Or of Peter, who lied about even of knowing Jesus. You see, simply, 
We are not simply teaching our children not to lie, but the Bible is filled with illustration after illustration after illustration of what happens when we don't live according to God's word. So, for example, when your child lies to you, it's not wrong to look at your child and say, son, you shouldn't lie because God told us not to lie. Now, if you're a parent like me, I know a lot of us have struggled with this, right? I did early on in my parenting because it feels like you're beating your child over the head with the Bible. Well, they're going to grow up and resent the scriptures, Pastor, if I tell them that. Listen, this is what I realized made this so eye-opening to me and how I parent my children. God did command us not to lie. Think about it. And so to look at our sons and our daughters and say, listen, you can't lie because God said not to lie is not a wrong thing to do. As a matter of fact, it's the only way they actually learn not to lie. You see, this is how you apply the scriptures in your everyday life. This is how the web of all the commandments and all the promises are brought to bear in the mundane aspects of our lives. This is how we hold a truly Christian worldview. Or take, for example, a child who comes home from school upset. And as you begin to pry away at all the layers and, uh, and begin to get them to open up, you discover that their friend at school had betrayed them, said some things hurtful about them, either with their words or their actions. Listen, Christian mom and dad, what is your response in that moment? Should you say, hey, sis, don't worry. Bad things eventually happen to those who do bad things. Or, hey, listen, kid, I know life's tough. Deal with it. No. You pick your child up, you put them on your knee, and you begin to say, hey, I understand this is hard for you. And I know you're angry at your friend. That, that deep down burning, you just want to lash out. Did you know that Jesus's, one of Jesus' best friends betrayed him? And Jesus' response was not one of anger, but of love. And listen, sis, he wants you to love your friend at school. See, Jesus knows what you're going through. He's been there. And he says through the scriptures that he will be with you as you go through this moment. That's what you do. Now, can this become cliche? Can it become cliche like, like when you're going through a hard time and someone just looks at you and say, hey, man, God's working all things for his glory. You're good. It's Okay. What makes the difference between it being cliche and the way you parent your child with referencing and applying the scriptures versus something uh, like it just seems to be rubber stamping? Well, Jesus, you know, Jesus, Jesus. The difference is you actually have to believe it. When you look at your child and you say, Jesus loves you. He knows what you're going through and he wants to help you through it. Like, you've got to believe that in your own gut in order for it not to be cliche. Another example, just applying the Bible to your family life, is, is you can actively, mom and dad, practice the art of repenting and asking for forgiveness in front of your kids. Almost every other week it feels like I have to go to, to Marley or Abram and simply apologize. Ask them to forgive me, their father, who has done wrong, either in my style of method of disciplining or the way I reacted for them acting like a five-year-old. That's how five-year-olds act. This is how we push the scriptures into our lives. This is how we have a Bible-saturated home. This is how we lead children to Jesus. We can also pray often in our houses. 
making a prayer-saturated home. Prayer should be an integral part of your family life, so much so that your kids should actually embarrass your prayer life. Shouldn't just be something for meal times or bedtimes, but every little thing. Almost any time Abram gets hurt, he comes, Dad, can you pray for my boo-boo? I skimmed my knee. In the back of my mind, you're fine, kid. But what's he doing in that moment? He's working out the faith that his parents say they have. That God actually listens and God actually hears and God actually moves to the prayers of his people. It should humble us. We should encourage our children, bless our children, challenge our children. You understand what I'm saying? We absolutely must model for children a Christ-intoxicated life. Letting them see that Jesus, for who he actually is, Jesus' natural, the natural ebb and flow is all about Jesus. Mom, dad, your job is about Jesus. The way you raise your kids, it's about Jesus. The way you eat your food and drink your drinks, it should be about Jesus. This is how you do it. Number two, we, we, we become children. You see, there's something about a child that is essential for the entrance into the kingdom of God. It's not their innocence, right? Anyone who has children knows they ain't innocent. Little sinners, just like you and I are big sinners. Nor is it their purity or their sweetness. Again, they're sinners. Adam and Eve's DNA, my and your DNA, run throughout their being this bent towards hell, this bent towards rebellion against God. Still, for some reason, Jesus seems to be saying that children are a better example of how to enter the kingdom than are adults. Look at verse 14 here. He says, But when Jesus saw that he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. You see, we, as children, must come helpless and hopeful to Jesus. Jesus says... Children are the kind of people who obtain the kingdom of God. It's who they are. Like, they simply obtain it. Children teach us something here. We see, we see them coming to Jesus through the help of others, no doubt having some degree of hope and expectation. Small though it may be, children are helpless. They can't do anything by themselves. It's nauseating at times. If I have to tell them one more time to simply play nicely, they're hopeless. Yet even at a tender age, they seem to be filled with hope and expectation. They don't know all they need to know. But they know that they need the help of somebody else. And they are hopeful that they will actually receive it. You see, they come small, helpless, powerless. They have no clout, no standing with other people. They have nothing of which they can offer, nothing they can bring. They come empty-handed. And this... Friends, it's how you and I should come to Jesus. No righteousness of our own. No hope outside of, our, outside of Christ. No hope within us. We come helpless and hopeful in Christ. We also come trusting and dependent. Look at verse 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a small child shall not enter it. You see, Jesus says the kingdom of God is received, not earned. Don't miss that. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, you're not earning it. It's received like a little child receives lunch when you serve the table. It's received as a little child or it's not received at all. You see, why did Jesus create children? Why did God create children? He created them so that we would have some understanding of how we're actually supposed to come to Christ. 
By their display of trust and absolute dependence on another person, children point the way to the entrance into God's kingdom. Children have the capacity to enjoy a lot but explain a little. You ever think about that? They just, food just shows up on the table. They can't explain it, but by golly, they're going to enjoy it as long as it's not vegetables. They live by faith and dependence on somebody else. They must trust somebody else in order to merely survive. And Jesus says, be like that. Understand, when you receive God, when you receive Christ in the kingdom of God, that's what you're like. But he, he says we also come for affection and blessing. Look at verse 16. He took them up in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Don't miss. Jesus picked up a child. What a picture of the amazing gospel of grace that God in Christ picks us up. He is tender, affectionate to those who bring nothing to him but their need and their sin. He even laid his hands on them and blessed them. With several components of this Hebrew blessing that, that Jesus was giving here, a meaningful touch, a spoken word, attaching high value, picturing a special future, and an active commitment. Christ fulfilled all of these components. He picked them up, held these children, spoke a word of blessing over them, and attached to them the highest value that they could have from their intrinsic worth. He might have spoken prophetic words for future service in God's kingdom about these children. Who knows? Scriptures don't record for us exactly what he said. But he made an active commitment to see the blessing fulfilled through the cross. Through the cross. And so you and I, we come for affection and blessing from Christ. I just want to deal with the death of a child, right? This is a, a theological conundrum that often gets brought up to, to pastors when, whenever we talk about children and how Jesus views children. Jesus loves the little children, amen? But what happens to those who die in infancy or die young? What about adults with severe mental, uh, mental disabilities, like a 26-year-old with the mental capacity of a 15-month-old? What happens to these people when they die, pastor? Listen, it's easy. I believe they go to heaven, You see, few things in life are more tragic and heartbreaking than the death of a baby or a small child. This kind of grief can be overwhelming. Many console themselves that the child is now in a better place. Some believe the myth that the small children who die simply become angels. And what we as, as Bible-believing Christians must ask ourselves, what do the scriptures say? What do they say about those who die in infancy? We must ask ourselves, do we really know that those who die in infancy go to heaven? What biblical evidence is there? What do the scriptures say? If you look over church history, the church has been divided on this very question throughout most of its history. Some church fathers remained silent, never talking about it at all. Ambrose said unbaptized infants were not admitted to heaven, but have immunity from the pains of hell. Augustine basically affirmed the damnation of all unbaptized infants, but taught that they would receive the mildest punishment of all. Gregory of Nisan believed infants who die immediately mature and are given the opportunity to trust Christ. Calvin affirmed the election of some infants to salvation was open to the possibility that all infants who die are saved. Zwingli, B.B. Warfield, and Charles Hodge all taught that God saves all who die in infancy. This perspective of all children who die in infancy has actually become the dominant view of the church today, and I actually believe it's true. 
I think there's four good biblical theological reasons for believing this. Let me give them to you here. First, flip over to 1 John 4.8. 1 John 4.8. This is the strongest argument I have. You see, the scriptures are actually not direct in answering this question for us. And so we have to read all the breadth of scripture to understand and try to apply some prudence and wisdom to the, to the question at hand. First, the grace, goodness, and mercy of God would support this position. The grace, goodness, and mercy of God would support this position. You see, 1 John 4, 8 says, anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. Here we have God is love. It's true, gloriously true. Timothy 2.4 says, Who desires all people to be saved? God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, Jesus' concern for children are, is evident when Jesus says, Your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost from the Gospel of Matthew. Part of the understanding of this question is understanding why people actually go to hell in the first place. People go to hell because they choose in willful rebellion and unbelief to reject God and his grace. See, children are incapable of this kind of conscious rejection of God. Where such rebellion and willful disobedience are absent, I believe God is gracious to receive. Flip over to 2 Samuel in the Old Testament, chapter 12. So on one hand, the first argument is that the grace and goodness and mercy of God would support this position, that all children who die in infancy go to heaven. Second, look at, look at 2 Samuel here, chapter 12. See, David, when the son of David and Bathsheba dies, David does two significant things here. Look at verse 16. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell, tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering to David together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. And then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, called his name uh, Solomon, and the Lord loved him. See, David does two things here. This is the second argument for why children who die in infancy would go to heaven. David confessed his confidence, did you miss it, that he would see his son again. How could he see his son again unless... The child was in heaven. 
Number two, he he comforted his wife Bathsheba. You see, David must have been confident that his little son was with God in order to do these two things, in order to have such a confidence that he would see him again and to comfort his wife with the same news. The third reason for this is in James 4.17, the Bible says, it is a sin for the person who knows to do what is good and doesn't do it. The Bible's clear. You and I are all busted up. Sin nature through and through as a result of being born of Adam. We call this, in theology, we call this the original sin. However, the scriptures make a distinction between original sin and actual sin. Since infants are incapable of actual sins because they are incapable of moral discernment, and original sin is why infants die physically, actual sins committed with knowledge and understanding of who people, why people die spiritually and eternally if they die without Christ. Fourth and finally, flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 1. We'll land the plane here. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Verse 35 says, Not one of these men of this evil generation, this is where David is being, or not David, but Moses is, and God is, are interacting, and God's saying, No one from this generation is going to enter in the promised land. Verse 35. Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give you to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jebnuah. He shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, You shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall call Israel to inherit it. As for your little ones, this is important here. As for your little ones who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. You see, after the children of Israel rebelled against God in the wilderness, God sentenced this generation to a death sentence in the wilderness. But God specifically exempted the young children and infants from this sentence and explained, your little children whom you said would be plundered your sons who don't know good from evil, they will enter into the promised land. See, God specifically exempted from the judgment those who don't know good from evil because of their age. These little children would inherit the promised land and would not be judged on the basis of their father's sins. This passage directly bears on the, infant, on the issue of infant salvation and implies that the accomplished work of Christ has removed the stain of original sin from all those who die in infancy. See, knowing neither good or evil, these children are incapable of committing sins in the body and not yet moral agents and die secure in the grace of our Lord Jesus. See, John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, he was certain of this truth. He wrote to close friends who had lost a young child. He said this, he said, I hope you are both well reconciled to the death of your child. I cannot be sorry for the death of infants. How many storms do they escape? Nor can I doubt in my private judgment that they are included in the election of grace. Now let's be clear. Anyone who is saved is because of God, because of Christ. The grace of God in us, the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and the undeserved and unmerited regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Like all who have ever lived except for Jesus... It is because of his sovereign grace that we are saved. Abraham said this, and this is something I often refer to in times of trial or trouble or 
the most overwhelming situations, Abraham said this, won't the judge of all the earth do what is just? It's a rhetorical question to which the answer is, yes, he will. So for those incapable of willful acts of sin, we can rest assured in God's will and indeed do right. Precious little ones are the objects of his saving mercy and grace. So, so Pastor, like, what, how do you want us to apply this? Listen. The primary point of the sermon this morning is that you and I would love children to Jesus. We love them well. We would shower them with Christ, with the scriptures, with the gospel. We would pray with them. And that through this, that God might work in their hearts. Like, you and I cannot save our sons and daughters. You know this. Older people in the room, you know this. We cannot save our children. But here's what we can do. We can begin to put the kindling around the fireplace of their heart and hope that God would light the match. We can put the kindling around the, the, the fireplaces of their hearts and hope that in prayerfulness that God would light the match. You see, God is the one who saves. And so may we work hard in all things, to be honest, owning up to our own sinfulness in the areas where we fall short to our children, to our grandchildren, constantly apologizing, constantly repenting, constantly pointing them to Christ. I'm afraid most parents today are more okay with pointing their kids to education or to sports than they are to pointing them to Christ. And we miss the point of it all. Everything is about him. It's literally the only thing. I get up here every week and I say this. And you guys pay me to do it. It's phenomenal. It's fantastic. It's all about him. In our families, in our jobs, everything is about him. May we enter into this. May we apply this to our own lives. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that we would have a proper theological understanding of children. They are a good gift, a blessing from the Lord. Well, some in the room will never have children, and yet in this illustration of children accepting Christ, Lord, you've given us a picture of how we should approach you. So may we learn from them. May those of us who have young children, may we be emboldened to raise them as Christians, not as Americans first, but as Christians first. Following Christ in all things, may we be emboldened to say things that sound ludicrous to the world. Things like, we go to church every Sunday, so we can't play sports. Or, we love the Lord in this house, so there's things that we can't watch. Lord, we, we should sound absolutely insane to the world around us. And in that, you will display yourself. That's how you draw men and women to you, Father. That's how you took 12 ordinary men and turned the world upside down, Father. May we here at Calvary be like that. May our love for children not be an idolization of them, but may it be a proper understanding of the good gift of children and of the illustration of accepting you as Savior. Father, we love you. We pray you help us do all these things, because without you, uh, we will woefully fall short. For we are inadequate, and we need your grace just as much as children do. May we be reminded of that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.